Hi there, Dr. James K. Harris. Ah, uh, hello, Dr. Nick Flores. How are you? I am alive and here. How are you? Uh, alive and here. And at this point in the semester, that always feels like an achievement. So I'll take it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have had an eventful past few weeks as I am just getting back from the American Studies Association Conference, which was in New Orleans, Louisiana, for the real ones, NOLA. And it was... <laughs> I loved it. And it felt authentic. You have to tell me more, and I have to commiserate about like how annoyed I am that I didn't get to go. When conferences are finally actually back in person, I can't be there for other reasons. Uh, and that breaks my heart. But first, I think you got to tell the people where they are. You, dear listener, thank you, James, thank you for that, are listening to Learning on the Job. And man, even after all these years, still learning so much. Where two recent <laughs> PhDs of color navigate the world of higher education. We present our unique perspectives on the shifting landscape of higher education in the United States and share our behind-the-scenes thoughts on everything from from how to hold your tongue when that one colleague says the thing that you know not only triggers you, but everyone around you, and you just, like, do the deep breaths and internal, you know, sending good energy to them even though it like seems like the opposite thing you should be doing in that moment to learning how to not get fired call it a learning experience uh i feel again i always feel seen by these but like it's like you're you're there with me in the room this week and my meetings full of microaggressions as as we just as the faculty really sort of like shows their age and their different sort of like uh historical experiences and dispositions and it makes mm-hmm. for some very interesting conversations around student expectation and around okay. sort of like, you know, what a classroom is supposed to be. Yeah, it's always very telling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I appreciate you bringing up microaggressions and I wish I would have used that language in that little setup there. Um, and, you know, one thing that I am learning more and more about is the kind of microaggressions coming from inside the house, right? The ones that are especially biting or are particularly vicious and it's coming from like inside the house and i'm just gonna like leave it at that um because i feel like if i say anything more it could be identifiable and so i'm just gonna say Look, it's, it's, it's always ridiculous whenever it's come from inside the house. And it's it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And it's also a good reminder that sometimes we just spend too much time together. It's like we are in these worlds that feel so big, but they are actually very small. And we are all up in each other's space. And sometimes it's just like, oh, we should see less of each other. <laughs> big that, big that, here, here. But right. that's not the thing I want to talk about. The thing I want to talk mm-hmm. about was mm-hmm. ASA. Mm-hmm. 
because mm. ASA happened, the American Studies Association. So this is like overlapping territory for us, right? Like mm. no matter, both in my field of English, but also like English that is like ethnic studies, doing a bit of queer studies, like all those things together. Uh, like, and really all of the kind of ethnic studies, enclaves, women's studies, like all of those places have their own conferences, but they also all tend to share ASA as like a, a hub central conference. So it is kind of like this huge thing that is the big conference in like a bunch of different smaller subfields that all add up to be this giant thing that is American studies. But like, it's, it's always such a fascinating cross-section of people. It truly is, like, I, mm -hmm. at this point, I'm, I'm old enough now that, like, I know so many of the people at ASA. Just like, oh, you're it's, here, too. It's, it's a treat. It's an absolute treat. I, so, you know, it's, it's funny that you mention all of that, which I would echo and do echo about. It's the who's who of, like, the queer, queer of color, crip, trans, you know, the the people who are in the fields now that you're probably reading, as well as some of the OG folks who were having the initial conversations that kind of, you know, kicked down the door for those of us now having the conversations doing it. So um, I was really pleasantly surprised at how many familiar faces I saw, uh, as well as kind of newer faces to me, uh, but who have been in the field you know, for a while and kind of being, you know, received and seen. I think that that's one of the real treasures of ASA and also NWSA, which is actually happening this weekend. Um, the National Minneapolis Women's Studies Association. Association, which, which I'm unavailable to go to, unfortunately. I wish I had. It was it was a lot. I, this year I kind of had to choose between one or the other, um, which, was, which was difficult internally. But um, glad I went to ASA. I, I also want to speak to your point about how um, I can't tell you how many conversations that I was witness to, particularly among kind of graduate students, um, who all had this through line of describing the ASA as not knowing that a place like this could exist for academics, right? And by which they mean it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm disciplinary coming from, you know, an English or maybe history or, um one of the social sciences and it's so rigid and it's so, you know, conferency and ASA is certainly a conference, but it, it feels less like a rigid um, affair. Right. And so it was really interesting to kind of hear that as someone who's been going to ASA for years now um, and to now be on the other side of the conversation. You know, it was really fun also introducing people to, you know, people who they read about and write about who I know personally. And I'm like, oh, you don't know? Like, here, just let's go get a drink or let's, you know, like have a very quick introduction, you know, and you can, you know, meet them and see that they're actually just a human who like shits, eats, fucks like the rest of us, you know? Like we're all just here and we all are just humans. But it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I love that for you and I mean really shout out to everybody who made it it sounds like an amazing time and I will absolutely do everything in my power to be there next year um yeah the the calendar was the calendar and my research budget were not on my side this year I had a bunch of other priorities that sadly took precedent uh, and in hindsight whatever I the choices we made can't be unmade I love New Orleans mm -hmm. a lot and I'm sad I wasn't there but I'm glad that it sounds like it was a really really great time full of some incredible productive. work yeah, 
alone, yeah. I mean, all the panels I went to, everyone that I was in conversation with. I think uh, for many people, including myself, and this will be the last thing I say, for me, this was the first conference that I attended in a post-pandemic world in person. And I think it was the case for many other people. Yeah. And so it was this fun yet weird maneuvering and negotiating between like, oh, you know, like how much time do I spend with people? I can't tell you. And I and I went through for the whole conference this year. And every day I was exhausted by how much I was ex- how much energy I was exerting just kind of, you know, meeting with people, you know, even the side conversations, going to the panels, kind of being active and present for those for my own panel. Um and so, yeah, I I just the the pandemic has changed me. And and I will say that the the protocols for ASA were were particularly great, right? We masked the entire time. We were required to test daily. Um, you know, it was it was nice. It was a good. I appreciated all the effort that went into making it possible for ASA to be in person this year. So, yeah, shout out to ASA. Maybe one day you and I will serve in some capacity in that conference, as I'm sure I... we'll be expected to do one day. I, I firmly <laughs> believe, I have no doubt that the time will come. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, good things, great things. Uh, good luck to all the fine folks at NWSA. Uh, mm-hmm. The two are always, mm-hmm. like, right back to back, and it always, like, I'm always amazed by people who have the stamina to do both. I cannot imagine doing both. Like, mm-hmm. I, oh, my God, the exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, but, hey, mm-hmm. to each his or her own. Mm-hmm. Shall we move into our first official segment? I think we almost have to. It's uh, it's inspired by you know one of the literary great white men we'll say of the twentieth century, Samuel Beckett. I don't hate him. There's not a lot to hate there. Uh, it's not waiting for Godot. It's worse for Ho, wherein we remi- he reminds us ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Uh, and this is the segment where we think about like you know failing and failing better and what it might mean to sort of you know. Not as, to fail better, uh, and and I think that it feels like we can't not talk about the, maybe the most important failing better of the moment, the midterms. Mm-hmm. My gosh, if you were at all watching TV or you know on the internet for two point five seconds, you were likely bombarded by all of the ads and all of the campaigns telling you that. I don't know, abortion is good or abortion is bad, guns are good, guns are bad, or maybe you live in an area that is just particularly riddled with high crime, right? You know, you you likely got the ads. I, I will say, um, in terms of why we chose to place it in Failing Better is that I think that there were there was a lot of energy around uh, this being a midterm that was supposed to um, maybe replicate or the expectations around how voters would turn out might mirror or like look like, you know, when a president has such a low approval rating that the the party opposite of the president usually does well in the midterms. That was not the case, <coughs> excuse me, this round. And to be sure, this is not a political po- podcast. And I, you know, I would not recommend you listen to <laughs> <laughs> myself at least for kind of any 
you know, political commentary um, or your North Star in that regard. But I will say I am also surprised at the record number of people who turned out to vote. Um, I actually did in-person voting this year. I don't know if you did, James, or if you uh, did mail-in. I think I'm going to try and do mail-in for the next one, which will be a presidential election. But um, yeah, well, no, I, I waited the next almost one will an be hour. 2023 because we have elections every year. But like, will there be anything important on the ballot? Well, we do, in fact, yeah. have them every year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But but I take the point that like so I also voted in person um, and honestly this was my first time voting in person like at my new precinct so since I've moved mm. to Brooklyn uh, we voted like we did the uh, mail in voting last time uh, and then I think I primary early voted so I was at the precinct but not on the day um, and so this is the first time like going on voting day to my precinct which was incredibly weird because and I guess this is true lots of places I guess this is true lots of places. I'm used to my old polling place in Columbus, which was inside of a church, which was its own kind of weird. This one's inside of a school, like an elementary school that's like actively in school. So it was just like oh. a mob of adults, just like all going in a <laughs> line, like, like through yeah. to the special, like to the separate second cafeteria auditorium room thing. It was, mm -hmm. it was very strange, but also, you know, magical and democracy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. New York does this thing also where like they have, we have, or New York City, I guess, has paper ballots. Uh, and so, like, we have paper ballots, and every, every single time I have ever voted, they have, like, a touchscreen you have to use to sign in, and you sign the touchscreen with one of those, like, touch, like, things, pin stylus things, and then yeah. you use that pin to fill out your paper ballot, and then you keep the pin. So I have now, like, a stack of, like, six voting pins. Because every time I go vote, I get a new fucking pin. And they're not great pins, but, like, mm -hmm. it's against my nature to throw away a pin. So just stockpiling mm -hmm. vote NYC pins. It feels very wasteful. Yeah, I look forward to visiting you in Brooklyn and you showing me the box of pins that you've it's, just accumulated over the years like every time you vote they're just like no no no, take the pin with you i tried to give it back to the lady today i was like i actually have like four of these she's like please there's more boxes take the pin with you <laughs> like, you don't this realize can't be what you're spending our tax dollars on right 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 exactly the budget is all <laughs> we, for pens we spend it paper. all on pins it's nothing but pins there is no right. person it's just pins in this right. machine right well yeah i mean with regards to feeling better kind of circling back. But so yeah, ah, so did like I just say circle back. Like I'm in some like bizbroing. You've been bizbroing. I love biz broing. Oh my gosh, but circling back. What do they I don't actually care. But yeah, that but like but I do moment. think this is an appropriate place for it in part because I think like part of the narrative leading up to this and I think you're right we are not a politics podcast except for places where politics and education intersect. And I do think there's actually a really compelling The New Yorker has an interesting as uh, op the piece about how uh, it was a really good time to be in a school board if you hate LGBTQ kids. Like, those people did great. If you're running, like, a school board election as, like, an anti-Black Lives Matter, anti-LGBTQ books person, they did alarmingly well. And so I do think mm. there are some places where politics and education intersect that might be worth keeping an eye on. But that's not what I wanted to put in Failing Better. What I wanted to put in Failing Better was the idea that, like, look, it never feels good to watch 
um, a party that represents fascism and hate as its so core values uh, ascend to any form of real meaningful power. But this was, I think, predicted to us as A, it was going to be way worse, and B, it was going to be way worse because young voters in particular were disengaged. And I think neither of those things being true mm -mm. feels important and very good. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what did Whitney say? Um, what did Whitney write about? I believe the children it? are our future. Now, you can teach them, but you got to let them lead the way. You've got to let them lead the way. And not that, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll leave it there. Children are our future. Let them lead the way. Whitney said it. Turns out she was right. Look. Remains to be. And... And so you love That's to right. see it. I'm happy to pass this baton, you know? It feels good to not hate the generation coming after. Gen Z, nailing it. You love to see mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's, like, move into our next segment, um, Disingenuous Arguments, where you and I, James, because uh, there is some overlap here between voting, midterm elections, education, um, that I think I want us to get into. Yes, um, yes. So Disingenuous Arguments, right? Like, the straw man arguments that you'll read about or maybe see the headlines for about how just disgustingly disingenuous um, the claim or the so-called argument or so-called truth claim may be. And it's just like, no, that's bullshit. Like, that's not true. Or that just seems so egregious in our time. And you're like, you scroll past it or you just like roll your eyes as I often do. And you say, I don't want or have time for this. Well, we've created a segment where we do have time and take the time for it. Uh, so on the docket this week, um, in the vein of politics and education overlapping, a one Mr. Senator Ben Sass uh, has been and signed a contract at Florida's flagship uh, to become their president of the University of Florida system, I think all system. of them. Yeah. yeah, system. And so this raises um, very obvious kind of red flags. Um, worth noting, um, the contract includes a clause wherein he uh, tenure is not um, granted right but there is another clause saying that after the time of his service i believe it's a five-year contract um that he'll be appointed as a kind of a faculty member right um very brief context uh he is a senator uh for the state of nebraska is a known republican um the party of gutting all types of education funding particularly public education um, and yeah, it is kind of in line with what universities, and I'm thinking of Wisconsin years ago when they appointed, um, what's his name to the president who was like, not even a, you know, a professor who had nothing to do with higher education, who ultimately, um, were witnessing the kind of crumbling of tenure, um, you know, fast forward here in Florida, we've got someone who's appointed, um, and it just feels really, um, like, 
disingenuous in the ways that uh, I know a few college presidents and all of them have always said to me, you know, the way to get there is that you have to go through the ranks. You have to, you know, become, you have to get tenure. You have to kind of follow those protocols to get to this position. Um, and it just seems like this is, you know, obviously no longer the case. Um, but it, that's worth noting because of, you know, the experience that one might have in the classroom or working in administration that, you know, someone from the outside coming in um, has no clue and can, you know, prob- and will likely cause more harm than good. Um, or a few thoughts, initial thoughts that I have, but I'm curious, dear friend, what are, um, your, what are your, what are your I, rumblings? I, I think that there is a special place in hell for people who continually insist that there's some reasonable version of white conservatism. Um, and I just, I'm, I can't stress enough how tired I am of like, particularly white dude from Yale who comes through and tries really hard to sound reasonable, but ultimately he is offering the same warmed over bullshit that is the bread and butter of a party that again has become beholden to white supremacy and like fear mongering. I mean, there is, this is, we're so far from having a meaningful conversation about the future of education with these people. Like the University of Florida is actively and aggressively attempting to dismantle tenure. And so like Mm -hmm. Ben Sass. Notably, right, this uh, this article that we're going to link to that talks about Ben Sass's not being rewarded tenure sort of mentions that ends on this note of how he insists that tenure, protecting tenure is one of his primary objectives. And, like, I can't stress enough how fucking tired I am of watching Republicans look me in the eye and lie to my face about how they're not going to do a thing they have sworn up and down is the only thing they want to do the second you give them power. This is mm-hmm. verbatim everybody going up for the Supreme Court swearing they respect Roe versus Wade. This is every time they told us they weren't going to start a war. Like, I'm so fucking tired of acting like we don't know how this ends. Like, Ben Sass mm-hmm. is a clown and an absolute buffoon. And I understand that, like, white men love protecting one another, so he is, of course, Florida's disgusting clown governor's choice to run this school that they've chosen to run into the ground. But, like, I can't imagine why the goodwill Florida has somehow miraculously managed to accrue over the last 10 years. They are just going to aggressively burn on giving another career shot to the dude from Nebraska who already fucked up at running a college. Like, I don't get Mm -hmm. why this is happening. None of this makes any sense except to say there is an endless, endless, endless appetite in certain parts of America that look a lot like Florida and Texas to watch mediocre dipshit white men fail upward. And I am so done with it. (laughs) And it's, and that is this landscape. Ooh. Baby girl, yes. All that. It's like, and Ben, go fuck thank yourself. You for taking Please this go time. fuck yourself in the quiet corner. Right. It's Mitch Daniels at Purdue. It is. Oh my God. Go away. Go it, away. It, 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 it just. So you don't get to look us in the eye, tell us school is stupid and useless and all, but also I want to protect it. I believe in these. I love school, except that you overeducated liberals. Well, girl, what do you think school's making? Turns out when you give people a book, they don't like your bullshit anymore. Mm-hmm. When you arm them with the... Basic literacy skills. 
research 101. How do you get to page two of Google? That is literally all the fuck it takes. We hate to see it. And, you know, the an alarm here, or at least an alarm that I'm thinking about, is that, you know, it, it seems so far. I mean, not, not just geographically, like, to, you know, Illinois from Florida, Florida from New York. Um, I mean, Nebraska is just down the way from Illinois. But to think about how this reverberates and how this will undoubtedly become something that happens even closer to home, you know, whether it be in Illinois or whether it be in adjacent states to Illinois or New York or wherever, right? Like, I mean, because we're witnessing this, right? In these places where it seems like the the poll or the benchmark is being set so far that we're going to wake up one day and that will just kind of be the norm. And that is alarming, right? To think about, yeah, the dipshit failing upward. Um, and to loop back to the, like, ed- so, to, to loop back to the education as politics problem, right? Like, it is very clear that what's happening here is, like, the Gen Z issue of, like, as the future generations are educated, they are less likely to be bought into Republican bullshit. So how do you fix that? You destroy education as, like, a process, you, right? And so, like, yes, instituting these people yes. across the country at different, like, formerly reputable places of higher ed is about, like, completely dismantling those things, right? Those apparatuses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. University of Florida has to be a huge thorn in the side of the way that Florida currently operates, right? Like, University mm-hmm. of Florida just last year was in the news because their governor tried to sue them because he doesn't like it when you tell people the truth about his election laws. Mm-hmm. Like, the reality is that schools that operate the way schools are supposed to are anathema to the world Ben Sass wants to live in. So letting him run one is exactly letting the fox run the hen house. <laughs> Oof. I... I don't know that I have any more to add. Honestly, you are... You are coming in, baby girl. You've got these. I'm just tired of pretending we don't know how this ends. We're looking right at it. Like, stop looking at my fucking eyes and lying to me. I'm tired Mm -hmm. of it. I know you're lying. This is a waste of energy. Don't do it. Right, 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 right. Finger on the button. Saying one thing, finger on the button. I would never. What? I I respect your gay rights. (laughs) Take those. I would never. Like, there's no stopping with these people. And there, there truly and isn't. And, and yeah, there, there really isn't. There really isn't. And we should all be... Voting, but we did. Paying attention. And we, and, and we did. Yes. All, all of the things. Um, let's take a break. Do you want to take a let's break? Let's take a break. Yeah, let's take a quick break. Again. Oh, returning. It always feels so right. Mm-hmm. Here we are. And yeah, do you want to jump into this new 
er and evolving segment that we have going? Certainly I do. Uh, and I and this will be the place where, of course, you will hear that this is a good idea, bad idea. Uh, because inspired by the Animaniacs, this is our segment where we bring you <laughs> a good idea and, you know, like the bad idea riff. Uh, and so the notion here, right, is like there is a right way to do the thing. Uh, and it is the significantly less elaborate and stupid version than the thing that you did do. Uh, and so here we find ourselves with a good idea and maybe a, a kind of bad idea. Mm-hmm. Good idea, possessing a skill. Bad idea, assuming said skill. So, I found an article uh, on the Chronicle, and it struck me initially because of the title, which is the scholars the scholarly skill almost no one is teaching, and that's all I read initially. And so I thought, hmm, there's so much <laughs> that I've not been taught. Right, this this. What, what some have coined as like the hidden curriculum of like, you know, institutions whereby, you know, no one tells you about like plugging into the networks, right? And dropping a name in a cover letter or not dropping a name in a cover letter or, you know, all of these like little hidden curriculum things. It's kind of like old school, old boys network, right? So I thought it was going to be something like that. Um, turns out there's even more were not taught and some researchers have found that peer review right so how does one conduct a peer review when asked um is actually not a skill that is being taught right um i've been asked to do peer reviews i've done them um and to be sure i had to ask like six or seven different people like how do i you know, write this, and I was reviewer too, and I knew that, right? And, you know, definitely fuck re reviewer too sometimes because it, it feels like they're the people who just will say what they want to say. And I do, and I have received some of those reviews, but there, it is a skill, right? It is something that we ought to be taught, um, especially when so much of our livelihood as researchers, academics, rests upon our publishing, right? And these type of records. And so this article gets into how, A, it's not a, a, like how to, how to do a peer review is, you know, at its base, not taught, but then how this has the kind of detrimental effects in publishing with journal articles and, and books, right? And how this whole process then becomes, you know, arduous and belabored because, um, yeah, there's just like, it's just not a, a, a learned or, or taught skill. And so, yeah, this is, rubric, I'm so fascinated by this article for a bunch of reasons. Um, so first of all, thank you for bringing this to the table. I genuinely, I mean, now that I'm reading it, it seems so obvious. And yet I had truly right. never thought about this. But it is like, At all. I mean, I think Same. we've all, if you've ever written a thing that receives some form of well, peer review at all, but particularly like academic, whatever, for publishing peer review, you know that like those reviews can be wild. <laughs> like sometimes they're very, very helpful. And sometimes it is just like 
I don't know. They're they're there are typos in the review, and they're formatted all kinds mm. of crazy. And it's just like, what you do? Was this like twenty minutes in between other emails you were sending? Like, what is this? What happened here? And it's so interesting to think that, like, oh right, of course, because duh. When do you get taught how to do this? Like, right, by whom? Right. At what point? Right, because because it's not because the review it serves multiple functions, right? It's supposed to be a part of the conversation like it it's supposed to be someone who's having the conversation you're having obviously not the way that you're having it but has a knowledge of the citational you know the citations um as well as inviting you to think about you know how and where you might fill in more maybe edit out less right um among other things among, you know, also commenting on the arguments and the evidence that you're marshalling in said, you know, document. It, yes, yes, it is absolutely but supposed to like, be that. But, and then sometimes then it's, like, it's also... It's supposed to be this, right, right, right. It, it can be a demoralizing and humiliating experience, right? Especially when Revere 2 is involved, right? I mean, you're just like... I've received reviews where it has felt so personal. Like, I feel like I... Like, the person knows who I am. <laughs> and took that as an opportunity to you know, add that comment that would be taken personally, right? Or that or that could be taken personally. Um, and, and of course, that's, like, that's, that's something that we're inevitably going to face because at least in my field of Latina, Latino, Latinx, Latina studies um, and kind of queer, queer of color studies, right? Like these fields are really small. And so... Of course, I'm going to have, you know, folks reviewing my work who, you know, I saw at ASA this weekend, right? But it's, yeah. But anyway, back to the back, back to the, the good idea, bad idea. Yeah, it's just like, it's true. It's so obvious, but also. Well, and okay, so I think I'm going to be, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still turning this over in my head because I'm so intrigued. Like, I wonder if part of the problem isn't also just like part and parcel with the bigger problem of like, how do, how do you make academic work at this point when everybody's kind of having these very different conversations like there isn't necessarily like once 10 15 years ago right there were like there are certain scholars everybody is citing because there's just not quite as much stuff so like there is a way to sort of build a citational expectation and then like review from that point of expectation right they're like well if you're going to be in this field we assume you know this and i wonder if part of the problem now isn't just like how do you find enough experts to cover all the subfields? And, like, how do they meaningfully... I feel like I am often writing a thing where, like, I am clearly... I mean, obviously, you're you're a doctor. You're always the expert in the room. But it's like, I am so much more the expert on this topic than the person who's reviewing it that the review has turned into, like, kind of a abstract, like, is there room for this knowledge as opposed to an evaluation of the ideas? Because, like, there isn't really anybody else working in this space who can evaluate these ideas. And you, yeah, and additionally, right, this is expected of me, of you, right? Like, so in addition to what we might hope for as a sincere engagement and sincere evaluation of the ideas at hand, right? Like, we are also expected to do this, right? This is an expectation. Like, I am, ex I know that I am expected to do well, this in order to I get mean, tenure I think maybe the right? point is, though, like, is it? Because I think part of what this is highlighting is. is, like, it is, I think yeah. part of what this is highlighting, though, is, like, well, no, the expectation is that you'll do it, not that you'll do it well. 
Because there's no rule around well. Yes. And, and I think that that's what this article is, is getting at, right? Is that, in fact, we're learning that doing it well is a thing that is not taught and therefore... Or evaluated, right? Like, so what we're evaluating is just, yeah. are you doing it? And if it's bad, then that's what it is. And I think maybe this also speaks to, like, the pace, the volume, the sort of ridiculousness of academic publishing. I mean, I will say again, maybe we should all take about a year and a half off and just, like, read all the things we're behind on and decide what we want to make next. But obviously that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, and maybe in the future, we can spend more time, you know, devoting our time here together, James, to just talk about publishing too, because there are so many myths around it. Um, and so many layers that these myths compound that, you know, for many years, even when I got here to Illinois, I was so afraid to like submit, submit somewhere, um, which only like, you know, elongates that process further, which doesn't help me any because I'm on a clock, right? Um, so th- there's there's a lot, and there's a whole episode to be had about publishing, and I'm sure there's a, and there are endless materials out there talking about publishing um, as its own cottage industry in, in the academic world. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring that forward because it, um, you know, affects me very directly, and I'm also, you know, was actually just recently asked to peer review something and I said yes and I have not heard back from this journal um and I followed up I mean and <laughs> I, I would, like I I don't do a ton of peer reviewing these days although I do am, <laughs> to a degree that I find shocking I'm doing a lot of like um evaluations and it feels similarly like there again is a genre mm. that you're never trained in and the expectation yes. and it is a currency yes. of how this place works. Uh, and like there's no mm-hmm. real rules. And so it feels like I'm constantly like making it up. And it's the added weirdness of like, you know, it's less so now I am less young than when I started this job. But when I started this job, I was routinely ten years younger than any person I would be observing. So it was also just like a really weird dynamic in that way. It's a, it's an odd, I think there are these kinds of skills that are very much the way this place actually operates. But the assumption is that like, by the time you get there, you will have just been mentored magically into knowing how to do them. But because mentorship is so soft and fuzzy and nondescript, like that doesn't happen. And so we all get here and we're like, wait, what am I what? You want me to do a what now? Or through just osmosis. Yeah, through osmosis, we just all learn how to... Like, oh, you've, you've um, seen a review. You know what that is. And I'm like, reviews. I don't. I don't. I literally don't. What words go on this paper? <laughs> Possessing a skill versus assuming a skill. There it is. Oh, uh, yeah. Anywho, well, I'm going to beat you to the punch this week, my dear, dear friend. And I'm going to ask you the one of two questions that we ask to round out the podcast and the first is always friend what you reading <sighs> honest answer a, a a metric fuck ton of articles about social annotation i'm working on a special issue about social annotation in the two-year classroom uh, for this journal and pedagogy and it's really cool and really exciting and publications and blah 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 but like my god it's so much 
reading about social annotation because I have allowed this pilot project to eat my life and it makes no sense if I don't at least get like an article or two out of it. Uh, so that's what I'm actually mm -hmm. reading, but that's boring and I don't really want to share it because it's boring. Uh, so the thing that I'm looking forward to, the thing that I ordered that will be here actually I think tomorrow that I am so excited about is it's finally time. It's cookbook season. I'm getting a new cookbook. Uh, Tanya Davis, Ooh. who you maybe know if you like me are a Top Chef stan, you know Tanya because she's been on a couple seasons of Top Chef. She's on Top Chef. She's on one of the most recent all-star seasons. She's just a badass. Uh, and I feel like Top Chef is one of those shows where like sometimes you get to show off how cool you actually are and sometimes the show introduces you but they don't really know what to do with you. And I feel like Tanya is one of those people the show never quite figured out how to showcase what she's actually incredible at. And what she's actually incredible at is like this very specific take on like California style soul food. Uh, so she has a new book out, California Soul, that is her riff on what is California style soul food. It's, I'm so excited. It looks so delicious. This is what I will be doing over break. I am unfamiliar with Tanya Holland. Thank you. His work. <laughs> but I am looking at this uh, cover story and I am always down to try a new recipe and you above all James are someone who always is like in the know about cooking and uh yeah so I take this um not lightly because you're right it is cookbook season and it's time I don't know about you but I just I just brought up my crock pot so oh mine doesn't go that. away what <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because uh, there's nowhere to store it. It just lives out where everything is. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Friend, no, so thank you for this rec. I'm so I, I, you gotta read it. To. You gotta read it, and I will make mm -hmm. you some things when I when I hopefully maybe see you this spring. Watch this space. I might have news for the peoples. Uh, but that's not today. Today mm -hmm. I just gotta know what you're reading. Ooh, thank you for that question. So, um, I ASA was at the top of the hour and I was on a panel with Yvonne Bujan, who's over at Washington St. Louis, a postdoc there in gender women's studies, women, gender and sexuality studies. I forget the, their, the, the full department name, but it's one of those two. Um, as well as Marty Fink, who is at the University of Toronto, but whose book, Forget Burial, Burial HIV Kinship, Disability, and Queer Trans Narratives of Care, is one that I had engaged um, last year, uh, but had only kind of read the intro and kind of skimmed some of the chapters. Um, but that after being on the panel, I have re like come back to the book because I really need to read it all the way through. Um, when we were presenting this past weekend at ASA, Marty was not reading from uh, their first book, but on some new material, but I was actually citing, you know, parts of Marty's work. Um, and it's just a really um, careful and considerate and sincere kind of engagement with kind of the HIV archive, HIV AIDS archive, kind of through and refracted through the lens of kind of kinship and disability and kind of queer trans lenses, which I think is, you know, only starting to become maybe more prominent in, in the fields that I'm working in and through. 
And so coming back to that, um, they're just also all around a lovely person. And um, yeah, so that's what I'm reading. Um, looking forward to, um, yeah, diving in deeper, so to speak. So yeah, this looks this looks Friends. this looks fascinating. Um, really, this looks fascinating. I am. It so... is. It is. I'm. I'm gonna teach parts of it. I've decided for one of my seminars next semester. So, I'm excited about that. Um, friend, what you thinking? Oh, that's a great question. I am. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking about my sister. My sister's coming to town to visit. Uh, so my sister's in D.C. Mm. And we don't, weirdly, even though she's in D.C. and I'm in New York, we don't really get to see each other very often at all in person. Talk on the phone all the time. But I rarely get to see her in person. Uh, and so she's coming to New York for the weekend. Her and her friends are having a girls weekend. <laughs> and apparently part of her friend's girls weekend is they really want to go to the most important tourist attraction in all of New York, can you guess what it is? The Starbucks Roastery on 9th. So there's a really, really, really fancy Starbucks. It's called the Roastery. Uh, and it's down on 9th and Midtown. And it has, like, they roast their own coffee there. It looks, it's it's wait, really fancy. Wait. Yes, this is exactly what wait, I wait, said. Wait, 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 wait. Huh? The what? We're talking about the Starbucks Roastery... Um, Starbucks originally from Seattle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Starbucks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have yeah. a fancy... Yeah, yeah. It's a Starbucks. It's Starbucks. Uh, and so, you know uh. what? You, you know what? We are going to put it in the show notes because you need to see this because it'll change <laughs> your life. Uh, the Starbucks roastery is just... I mean, it's stupid. It's like a tourist attraction of a Starbucks, but it is still absolutely a Starbucks. Uh, so I'm going to the fancy Starbucks with my sister, where they roast their own beans in-house, and they have a special roastery menu of foods and drinks you can only get at the fancy Starbucks. Uh, and so I... And I've... <laughs> it's, it's... It is... Um, I think Insane doesn't quite scratch the surface, but there's something called the Experience Bar... Where you can get, like, I don't, I don't know how to describe them. I guess they're coffee cocktails, um, but they're like, I, so I'll report back. Going to the Starbucks roastery, uh, gonna have a Starbucks roastery experience. Literally, that's a thing you can buy. It's a product you can purchase. I'm going to purchase an experience from the Starbucks roastery, and I can't get that out of my head. The way that they will just take all your money, <laughs> right? Um, go into Midtown to go to a Starbucks. Go you, that's off, how you know I love my sister. Go off. Friend, what you thinking go about? Go off, sis. <laughs> so I'm thinking about my 2023 deadline and this manuscript. And now that I have been in community with some folks at ASA and reorienting myself back to the manuscript, um... Yeah, I'm just thinking about that. It's kind of consuming all of my time and focus. Like when I'm not doing it, I'm thinking about it. When I'm sleeping, I'm thinking about it. Um, but I know that I have a lot of support and care and people in my corner, which is making it a little easier, but you know. Yeah, a little easier and also day, a little harder. It's me sitting there. Understandable. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's like me having to sit my ass in the chair 
and just write. So, Word. you know, think about that. Um, and, you know, it's not... I say it not as like a like a negative in my life, right? Like how many people get to write a book that they want to write, you know, an academic book, nonetheless. Um, very fortunate, very excited. And yeah, still. Yeah, I mean, it's work. <laughs> and it's exhausting. Yeah. Work, work, how many work. people could? Yeah. Not many, because it's a lot. So <laughs> there's also that. So hey, you, you know it and you said it, but we're we are all here for you, and you are gonna get to the finish line, and uh, we're gonna host a Clags book event because I'm very excited about it. Yay! Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, to TBD when that happens, but uh, it's gonna be to be determined. So very yes, wildly yes, yes. worth it. I can't look forward to it enough. Friend, I well, when next well, I see you, it's going to be around turkey-ish time. Or I guess in my house this year, it's going to be duck-ish time. Because we're not going home for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. Eric and I. Because we have to go home for his brother's wedding, like, two weeks after Thanksgiving. And then again for Christmas. And I can't go to Ohio three times in two months. That's just too much. Uh, so we're staying here in the city for Thanksgiving. And that is going to mean making some duck. And I have nothing but plans to share all of my elaborate Thanksgiving recipes. Uh, so that is what we'll do when <laughs> next we convene. Yay, I look forward to it, and yeah, awesome. Well, as always, thank you so much for sharing and for being here, and I love you, James. So very same. I love you, friend. I will talk to you very soon. Very, very soon. Bye.